I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is Open Source, way off the beaten track of American biography. Harry Smith was the oddest duck you never heard of in the art underground, an unsightly, often obnoxious genius. Only the artists knew him, but it was a multitude. Bob Dylan, who sang the roots music that Harry Smith collected, Thelonious Monk, who talked him through the Bop era, Patti Smith, the songster, no relation, the poet Allen Ginsberg, who looked after the homeless Harry Smith, and now the historian detective John Sweat has filled in a thousand details in his portrait of the cosmic scholar and catalyst of our culture, Harry Smith. He was a compulsive worker who never took a straight job, a heavy drinker and a druggie, a social outcast with time on my hands, he called himself. He was a working artist in film, a mystic, and a philosopher who said late in life that he had had the thrill of proving Plato right. Music, he declared, can change the direction of a civilization. What if he's right, John Sweat? What do we owe him? And, and did his life prove his point? <laughs> it proved a lot of points. The problem with Harry is he was a jack of too many trades, <laughs> more trades than people could handle. And that added to the fact that he was quite mysterious about himself. And sometimes I'm not even sure he had his own story straight. He kept shifting his stories over the years. But what we do mm. know is that he qualifies in some serious way as an anthropologist, a pioneer filmmaker and multimedia artist, a painter, a folklorist, a poet, jazz scholar, <laughs> collector, archivist, record producer, magician, translator, hermetic, alchemist, and some other things I'm not even sure what they are. The question of asking who Harry is is sort of a big issue. I mean, the people who knew him, even the people who knew him best and the longest, didn't know all of these things I just rattled off. So whenever his name would come up, people would launch onto the thing that they thought he was. So when he died, they had a memorial service, and people were annoyed that some of the people were there saying, what's that person doing? They have nothing to do with this. When the Getty Foundation put on a two-day academic conference on him several years ago, the same thing happened again. People said, why is there a filmmaker here? Uh, it sounds hard to believe. How did he keep all these things separate as well as keeping his own life separate? Partly because he was poor. Let's say he does make an absolutely fascinating book, John. At the beginning of what you've written, you're in a warehouse of Harry Smith's remains, 120 crates, and you're asking yourself, how did I get here? Who is <laughs> Harry Smith? Why am I writing this book? What told you it was your story to tell, your kind of story? Every now and then, I'd pick up some little corner of the thing and say, oh, that's interesting. Harry studied with Melville Jacobs, an anthropologist in Washington State. Well, I'd studied with him one summer. Very nice man, the three-piece suit and so forth. And he listened to me and said, drop out of graduate school and go to New York and study with Harry Smith. Hmm. And then somewhere along the line, his name came up again. And I started asking around. And every time I'd ask something, they'd say things like, oh, he's an anthropologist. He's from Washington State. Somebody will say, no, he's a beatnik. Then I thought, I've actually seen this guy once or twice. <laughs> Someone called him Rumpelstiltskin. I think uh, both by his looks and by the fact that he could turn things into something else, you mm. know, whatever, into gold. The alchemy thing. Right, yeah. But uh, let me say, if you had found him, John Sweat, remember, this was a guy who wouldn't get out of bed to meet Bob Dylan when Dylan <laughs> came to pay his respects. Could he have ever been your friend? Or mine, for that matter. I mean, and if you were interviewing him, where would you have begun? 
that's interesting. Harry would cynically refer to his corporation, his people. Hmm. Check with my people. Well, it was impossible to know who he was talking about at the time. I would have become one of his people, I suppose, and I would be one of the people saying, gee, did he do that too? I mean, would I like him? <laughs> I think I'd have liked him in the way many of the younger people at the time liked him. That He was hmm. teaching them about things they could never get out of an academic course or a film school or whatever. And not only that, but he was showing how to do fabulous things like how to convert World War II aircraft cameras into modern cameras or to create an animation stand made out of cardboard and mm. rubber bands. So he was the kind of person that young people liked but would sooner or later get burned by him, I have to say. Interesting. He reminds me at times of Dostoevsky's underground man who said, I am a sick man, I am a wicked man. Cranky, rude, abrasive in Harry's case, even to people who promoted his work. His greeting to Jonas Mikas, the film scholar, was, I'm Harry Smith and I hate you. But surely he, he was not a bad man. The, the core question, it seems to me, is his taste, his artistic judgment. And a lot of it stands up. You had to get past that. It's funny, he, in an odd way, I hate to say that he was a dandy in the sense that um, Baudelaire meant that term. Dandies always intend to shock, but never be shocked by anything. And that's exactly how he operated. Go back to the beginning, John Sweat. Harry Smith comes out of the Pacific Northwest, Washington State. He's the child of modest, thoughtful parents, and he's a born anthropologist. He's a collector of everything. Native American ways, music, stuff. Here's Harry's memory of how it all started. When I was a uh, child, I lived this kind of isolated life. Somebody came to the school one day and said they'd been to this Indian dance and that they saw somebody swinging a skull on the end of a string. So I thought, hmm, I have to see this. I went to that and, and uh, then I sort of fell in with the uh, Indians for a long time in, in around Puget Sound. I was doing like summer vacation or sometimes in the winter while I was going to high school or junior high school. John, what's a born anthropologist? What is an anthropologist after all? Well, Harry was born in 1923, and an anthropology department was formed at Berkeley, I think, around 1925, one of the first in the country and certainly the most significant, and he wound up there at one point. The odd thing is that he was right up against several reservations on the northwest coast, the Lummi and the uh, Swinomish. Fortunately, there were two major anthropologists in the world who had worked in the same areas, Claude Lévi-Strauss and Franz Boas. Somehow or other, his library had these books, and according to people who knew him as a kid, he'd read them all. So Harry picked this stuff up by the age of 15, and he was going out to these Indian reservations, and he was welcomed by them, I suppose, because he was so sincere and open as opposed to anyone else. And today, uh, you would not be welcome even with a notebook in these reservations. So he's coming in, this part already sounds surreal, coming in with a disc-cutting record player that is creating 78 records with microphones, with auto batteries, with very heavy discs that he was using, some of them glass, and cameras. So he's taking pictures, he's painting pictures, and he's recording these things that had never been recorded before. Hmm. In fact, this is even more serious when you realize that he was allowed to see rituals what the U.S. had banned. The U.S. had this policy like Canada did of forced acculturation, but he was actually recording these things. It sounds unbelievable. In fact, the people today in those groups say it is unbelievable. John, the masterpiece that he's working toward, and it's a sort of miracle, is his anthology of American folk music 
published in 1952. It was a boxed set of six LPs that he got Folkways to publish. And it was one man's distillation of the American songbook up to the early 30s, the old weird America, as Griel Marcus put it. And it became the source book for a whole generation. Bob Dylan did his own version of 15 of the 80-some songs in that anthology. My father sang some of them, like When You and I Were Young, Maggie. It reminds me of Linda Ronstadt's line to us one time that American songs, in their endless variety, cowboy songs, Spanish songs, Tin Pan Alley songs, have been our most important export to the world. And Harry Smith somehow knew that. I should say when he was in school, he was strictly interested in classical music and was spending what money he could scratch together to get RCA Red Seal records, which were classical. And he declared on his senior yearbook that he wanted to write a symphony. So that's where he was at that point. But somehow or other, he wandered into a church sale in one of the towns around him, and he found a Tommy McLennan record, which sounded like nothing he'd ever heard before. Highway 51 I'm right by my baby's door Highway 51 Run right by my baby's door Now if I don't get the good I'm loving Ain't going down Highway 51 no more Now if I should die before my time shall come. So he's shocked by what he hears. And I'd imagine that Dylan had the same response, incidentally, because he covered uh, Tommy McLennan blues himself. Now, at the same moment, the war was on, and the government wanted the shellac, the records were partly made of, so they were asking people to turn in the records. They weren't paying anything for them. Wow. So these things started to be dumped, and Harry got the idea that he could get all these records for free, which he did. So he wow. started amassing wow. what turned out to be at least 20,000 of these records. Well, the blues was the first breakthrough, and then the second was Irish music. But then... The Japanese were being shipped off to concentration camps, and they were dumping their records. And Harry found those, and he put them on, and I was as shocked as he must have been. The Japanese records from about 1943 were swing and jazz records with Japanese lyrics. I had no idea. Mm. So now he was setting out to find records of everything, whether it be voodoo rituals, Strange instruments, strange voices, French chanson singers, marching bands, whatever. By the way, this is a kind of a modern thing. He's not now being a connoisseur. He's being a hoarder, uh, <laughs> which sort of fits with our times, right? Um, <laughs> wow. I mean, you know, I know people who say, I have 17,000 downloads or something. And you say, well, <laughs> what's the best one? I don't know. I don't have time to listen to them because they might disappear. Well, it's exactly what he was saying. These records are going to disappear and I'm mm. going to get them. But he had no idea how far this was going to go. Yeah, and this is all commercial recordings from record companies, not people in their backyard. And Bob Dylan said about the anthology, he said, it's all poetry, every single one of those songs. Yeah, Dylan must have had the same kind of a shock that goes with it. In a sense, you're discovering, in popular music even, when anthropologists would discover in other subjects, a radically different world. John, put your finger on the distinctive stuff that Harry Smith liked in a song. This whole question, the central question seems to me, of his taste. Here is a song called I Wish I Was a Mole in the Ground from 1928, 
Bascom Lamar Lunsford. I wish I was a mole in the ground. Yes, I wish I was a mole in the ground. If I saw a mole in the ground, I'd root that mountain down. And I wish I was a mole in the ground. Well, Tempe wants the nine-dollar show. Yes, Tempe wants a nine-dollar show. When I come over the hill with a forty-dollar bill, tis, baby, where you been so long? Well, it's a very strange record. He turns into a snake at one point, and people have puzzled over this record for a long time. It, it's a prison song. Oh, that's really a reference to a prison he was in there and he's going to get out. No, it's a political statement. He's going to tear the government down. Modern writers right up to today are still toying with it. Now, I knew a guy well. He was a lawyer. He was, he was not the folk. He was a um, politician. And he could say, it's very surrealistic, isn't it? <laughs> Harry would have loved that, by the way. Uh, so he wasn't folk. That's an important point. Harry wasn't saying, oh, they are folk. What he said was that these songs are interesting because they're, first of all, he said they're strange and exotic, but even the most obscure get to be interesting, as in one recording he has of a gospel song on the B side, the opposite side of the single, it's got cocaine blues. Now, this is where it got interesting to me. Folklorists were not terribly interested in the words. It's hard to believe. Um, there could be weird songs they didn't understand, but they didn't really pour over the words, but Harry proceeded to create little telegrams or summaries in bold letters of what they were about. So it could be a song about um, a man who stalks somebody. So we would say things like, um, boyfriend turns out to be a criminal, she kills him. <laughs> he, he was summarizing these things and putting them out there. John, take another taste of the anthology. Here's a little bit of the Alabama Sacred Harp Singers. They're a white shape note group. Got to explain shape notes. Also, the Middle Georgia Singing Convention. That's a black shape note group. What are we hearing there, John? And what was Harry Smith hearing? He included, I believe, five of those in the anthology, but he was planning to bring out, and had already mastered a second anthology that was only shape note. Shape note singing is an American development, mostly in the Northeast, and it was designed to bring together people in some kind of quasi-religious fashion because they, they didn't perform it in churches, they performed it outdoors, and they didn't use music that you could read in the normal way. The notes were shaped. And it's very democratic. You switch around. You'd have a different leader. You'd have a different high part to a low part. And also very strange and very powerful, I think. Hmm. But Harry was really freaked out about it. And 
he had the concept that this was basically an African-American music that whites had commandeered during the Great Awakening. And he was asking all kinds of interesting questions about it. Like when they talk about going home, do they mean literally home or heaven or some other place? Mm. When they talk about going up, mm. are they talking about rising? Are they high? Are these people stoned on their music? What do they mean when they talk about the word food? He was operating like scholars should have operated, I think, by asking serious questions. John, the magic in this merger, the series of mergers, is still there for some people. Amanda Petrusich wrote wonderfully about it in The New Yorker three years ago. She was listening to Harry Smith's anthology and finding something powerfully mythological, cosmological, all about everything in it. Here's what she wrote. When I finally got my hands on a copy of the anthology in the late 90s, I found that listening to it was a metaphysical experience insofar as it seemed to bend the rules of space and time. Discovering new music often feels like that. It's as if you have come upon a secret room in a house that you've occupied for years. Well, Dylan talked that way about it as well. He was saying folk music doesn't die because it's got themes in it which are universal and transcendent and so forth. You know, roses growing out of the bones of dead lovers, etc. And he goes into all kinds of things on that. The funny thing is that Harry never thought of it that way. Um, he didn't talk about that stuff very much. He lost interest in it to the degree that when some of those performers that were on that album back in 1952 were performing in the village in the 1970s, he didn't even go to the performances. Hmm. So he had this kind of moving on quality. Well, I know that connection. Let's go to this one. And so when he took up things like collecting paper airplanes or uh, mm. Ukrainian Easter eggs or um, Seminole women's dresses. It was all about the same thing. Let's see how these things connect. And he once in a while would say something like, um, if yeah. I could show some connection between Sarah Carter, or the Carter singers, the Carter family songs and the quilts that she was making, and he mm. would try to ask her those questions. At some point, years later, he was asked about those recordings on the great anthology, and he said, I wasn't successful in what I wanted to do. I wanted to make phonetic transcriptions, and I was going to connect all the key words. I was going to see how those words worked and so forth. And he goes on to say, it's really not that interesting. And then he stops and says, on the other hand, I wouldn't be fair to myself to say that I didn't change something by making the records. John, you say Harry Smith, over a lifetime, put jazz on the top rung of American music, and he lived through significant evolution into his heyday out of a sort of black folk music in the teens through the explosion of bands in the 30s and 40s. What was it he loved, above all, about the genius jazz called bebop in the 1940s? So when he got down to Berkeley, he walks in just as bebop is reaching the West Coast. Now, bebop was an mm. East Coast phenomenon right. formed by most notably Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. And it was a music which Virtually everybody outside of a certain small group hated everyone from Louis Armstrong to the Russians who called it, you know, some kind of subversive crap or other, whatever. Hmm. It was highly experimental. It was played very fast. Yep. It had no words by and large and, until much later. And it was a kind of a mystery to it. And I think the first people to get excited by it were curiously arts people. For Harry's case, it was the San Francisco Museum hmm. of Art. 
had people in to talk about it. And one of Harry's best friends, an artist, said of that, all of us thought it was the most avant-garde thing there was. So they started actually trying to paint like this. And Harry got into the idea of actually trying to paint the records. Yeah, Harry Smith was committed to translating that music into painting and film and all kinds of visual art. In an effort to write down, like transcribe dances and so forth, I developed certain like techniques of transcription. And then I got interested in the designs of that stuff in relation to the music. That's where it started from. And then after I went to Berkeley and started smoking marijuana, naturally like little colored balls and things appeared when I was listening to whatever it was, Bessie Smith or something, whatever it was I was listening to at that time. And I had a really great illumination. The first time I heard Dizzy Gillespie, I'd gone there very high and uh, liter I literally saw like all kinds of colored flashes. Yeah, and he was already aware of the fact that there were people who did this sort of thing in different ways. For example, um, lights that would light up, set off by notes from an organ or whatever. So he thought of this as being in that tradition. So he started painting these large colored balls and triangles things. They were alive. In other words, he was animating painting. John Swart, let's listen to how Harry Smith came to visualize Dizzy Gillespie's famous Cuban exercise, Manteca. And see, each line in that painting represents a certain note on the record. Like if I had the record, you can project the painting to the slide and then it can point to a certain thing. See, like the main theme in there, which is to do, 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 do. There are those curved lines up there, so do, 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 and so forth. Yeah. At this point, Harry had moved into the Fillmore when it was in an all-black area of San Francisco, and he said he wanted to be around the people who were creating this. And he started to do giant murals. And um, one musician said to me, well, if he's painting what he heard, would I be able to play his painting? Mm. And I thought, well, that's kind of inaccurate. And he said, well, so are the transcriptions the solos. They're inaccurate, too. So it's the same kind of thing. So the, the difference between he and other painters who were painting music was that they were trying to paint what they felt like. He's trying to paint the literal record. This was his synesthesia, so to speak. Let, let's listen to Thelonious Monk's Mysterioso, Harry Smith's favorite jazz tune. Imagine him visualizing Mysterioso as he did. And I wanted to make a, one final painting of Thelonious. I realized that it was impossible to make it in the form of a painting because his music was fairly complex and it was better to make a film. That's almost Harry Smith in sound. <laughs> it is. It, it's very odd and has 
six and sevens popping around in there. And it even suggests two tempos going at once, mm -hmm. if you listen to it closely. But what's really odd is near the end, normally bebop ended like pop songs. You would end with the same as you started. In this case, he fragments that little melody going down. He's just dropping notes across the keyboard. And the word pointillism comes up here. It's a kind of painter flicking the dots. Mm. And Harry's absolutely amazed by this, so he's obsessed with it. He got to know Monk. He, he said he went to New York to meet Monk and so forth. He went further. When he put this to a film, he first just used a three-and-a-half-minute record, but then he decided to reverse it and run the record backwards mm. and to turn the film backwards. So if you sit through the film, you'll see a film that goes forward, then backward, and then forward and the music will go that way. What he said was, he quit trying to draw a paint because he couldn't tell where the notes were being placed. And that's where he met Allen Ginsberg in the five spot down on the Bowery. He saw this old disheveled guy sitting right next to Monk's piano and he's furiously making notes. Ginsberg said, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to figure out whether this comes in before the downbeat or afterwards. So anyway, he said it was so difficult. After about five years, he quit. Mm. By the 1950s, including at the Five Spot, it seems to me Harry Smith is a walking anthology of current music. And he lurked among those creators, and they listened to him. Thelonious Monk at the keyboard, as you say, Ornette Coleman, John Lewis, Charles Mingus, extending jazz right in front of Harry Smith. Or could you say in consultation with Harry Smith? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I think Harry's trying to translate this music, hmm. and he could only do this in film, and that's why he painted his films, much like he would have painted something else. That means you have to paint the background in some way on the back of the film, and you have to paint on the front. This is very slow work. And you mean literally he painted on the celluloid? Right. Frame by frame. Incredible. Right. And this means you also have to paint the same thing for several frames, otherwise you can't see it. It flies past. Hmm. Continuity of vision requires repetition. For example, painting the whole film a certain color and then smearing Vaseline on it, then taking a stylus and scraping designs off, which would possibly get a lot of like uh, spirals and uh, curvilinear designs of a certain sort. Then spraying uh, bleach into the background material where it had been scraped off and then washing the Clorox out and spraying another color into the place that the groove was. John Sweat, he's a miraculous figure, two miracles in particular, how he learned what he learned, but then also how he paid his way through life without any income. How did he do it? Uh, even he was <laughs> unclear about that. The one thing that was clear is that he couldn't do what he wanted to do and hold a job down. Hmm. He was not alone in that, but Harry had another problem. He hated money. He was known to give it away, tear it up. I summarized it by saying he couldn't be bought. Because if he did get anything, he never mm. took it as a payment for something. He took it as a necessity to buy something else. And always artwork, material, rather than food. He was getting drugs and drinks free most of the time. So he was in bad health, partly because he was completely committed to art. If he got a grant, mm. he'd spend the whole grant on artwork. He, he put it on one grant application that I myself, unfortunately, am a maniac. And he got the grant. Yeah, he said, um, you arts people like crazy artists, and I'm, a, I'm frankly a maniac, and I use your last grant to do crazy things, so I don't even know where it went. So I'm perfect for this kind of thing. <laughs> uh, who gave him the money, John, that kept him alive? How'd he get it? He, he attracted a number of millionaires and hugely important people to him. 
even when I think they had no idea what they were getting into. And it included people who were senators, CIA agents, um, mm. from the DuPont family, from the Astor family. Money would flow to him in small amounts, mm. and he was not able to handle it, and they would dismiss him. The best I could construct it, I've got some support for this from people who knew him, he never had more than, say, an average of 10000 a year. But what struck me was how the very rich and famous seem bored enough that they'll go that far out. Mm. Let me say that Joe Gross, Dr. Joe Gross, a psychiatrist friend of Harry's, said that one day he walked in and Harry was muttering to himself and he had a notepad in front of him and there were numbers all over it. Mm. Then he drew a line and then wrote down $18,765.32. Mm. He said, I figure God owes me this much. <laughs> and then he said, in any case, the account's closed. <laughs> John, stranger than the money story, what do we make of his claim that he never had sex in his life? <laughs> Actually, he said with humans. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He also said to two of his closest people that he was involved with a, a torch singer in San Francisco and had a son by his name, and they were looking for the son and <laughs> could never find him. And, and when I would ask about things like that, they'd say, you never knew with Harry, you know? I mean, yeah, well, yeah. it's true, you never knew. Um, <laughs> by the 60s, it seems he's living inside a modernist labyrinth of some sort, or a Don DeLillo novel, or maybe just the wild chaos of the Chelsea Hotel on 23rd Street. He's the man definitely knows too much and who's everywhere. Shake it down for the big themes of his life and his work. What is it that makes him interesting still today? I'll, I'll toss out a thought that it's all one music, black and white together, native and settler America, commercial and folk America, it's some sort of universal whole. Yeah, Harry thought everything fit. He's erasing those lines way, way before postmodernism and things that we often take credit for these days. And by the way, we're talking about Harry is totally hard to find. He actually is not so hard to find. He's in both the National Film Registry and the National Recording Registry, which are the elite collections of the mm. most American things. You know, to have them in both those categories, he should be a major figure, but it's not even known by most people that he worked in both film and music. Did John Lennon and Harry Smith ever meet? It'd be hard to believe that Paul McCartney didn't because he was underwriting a, an art gallery right across the street from the Chelsea. Ginsburg got to know the Beatles. Ginsburg thought he could make a hit record, and he tried, you know, and Harry recorded him. Well, that, that's a sort of symptom of Harry think, isn't it? Yeah, well... Why shouldn't the Beat Poet record a Beatles song? Well, I, the thing that shocked me is that Beatlemania took over the, the village. And Ginsburg, Ginsburg starts to find things like, yeah, I got really excited when I saw Amiri Baraka and Robert Creeley dancing to the Beatles. <laughs> and I said, Jesus, God. And then come the Fugs. And the Fugs are very interesting because they were part of this whole thing. The Fugs were amateur musicians. Or they weren't even that. They were poets who hired a couple of musicians to work with them. And they thought that the Beatles' lyrics lacked seriousness, so they were going to do something serious. John Sweat, let's hear the Fugs from their first album, 1965, produced by Harry Smith, setting the poet William Blake to folk rock.
but the seriousness for the folks was a mixture of surf music, country music, R&B, what have you, with lots of obscene and shocking words in it. But suddenly, Harry's into another kind of art world on the edge of pop art, and he gets involved with Warhol, who was fascinated by him, but a little put off by Harry's insulting him. And worse than that, Harry interrupting various groups that Warhol was sponsoring by out-punking them. In other words, if people were moshing and jumping off something, he would jump onto something. He would throw up on something. Um, <laughs> we haven't mentioned Elizabeth Taylor, the Elizabeth Taylor, who was very kind to him and provided money at times when he needed it. Yes, that was the attempt to animate The Wizard of Oz, but it was going to be a Buddhist Wizard of Oz, <laughs> and it was going to be with all the Oz characters that were left out of the film. And after a year's work of spending close to a million dollars, he had only four minutes of film. <laughs> Later in his life, he made a heroic effort to reconstruct the Kurt Weill Bertolt Brecht opera in German, Mahogony. What in the world was that about? Well, he was obsessed with the recording of that. At the same time, he was obsessed with Blonde on Blonde by Dylan. So they were in heavy rotation. People saying he was listening to him each at least four times a day, and the opera was two hours and 40 minutes. So <laughs> it was quite a commitment. John, here's a little of what Harry was listening to. Lottie Lania singing Alabama song from the rise and fall of the city of Mahagoni. I can't explain that except that there was something mythic about that story of the Florida town, imaginary, in which people had complete freedom and the whole place went bust. And some people say, oh, that's about New York in the 70s, New York was collapsing and so forth. But what really was driving him was the idea that there would be four screens. And there had been multiple screens before in movies, uh, Napoleon, and certainly Warhol had used them. But his difference would be these different screens would show different things and they would be switching. And he would spend seven, eight, nine years working on how this would work. It only showed a few times because he got angry at his psychiatrist friend, Joe Gross, because he told him not to come. And he came and he stopped the projector, threw the parts of the film out the street, oh and they had to stop the showing. So it's not been seen much since then. But this idea of showing more than one screen interacting, he thought would communicate to every known culture in the world. He was trying to make some universal film, which was, I'm afraid, too universal. John, he had at least a passing acquaintance with the work of Rudolf Steiner, anthroposophist, spiritualist, Go back to the spiritual thread in all of Harry Smith's work. Amanda Petrusich wrote in The New Yorker that she had been overwhelmed by the mythological, cosmological implications just listening to that anthology of folk music. She's in a trance. Uh, you know, having been raised partly in the South... Uh, that old weird America was still there. In fact, we're in the new weird America now, so, you know, we, we've got to watch those words. I was not shocked when I heard this. Uh, you know, I'd heard Hank Williams. He was still popular when he was dead. Hmm. And Hank Williams was singing Cajun songs and rock and roll, or, you know, hey, good looking, what you got cooking. 
Plus, black radio had already infiltrated all the white people in the South. <laughs> a radio was R&B, it was gospel quartets, all sorts of stuff going on. So I didn't um, get any transcendence out of this stuff. I said, oh, that sounds to me like the stuff when I was a kid. And then when I found out that there were connections between those old white country singers and black singers, such as Hank Williams learning from black guitar players or, uh, you know, the bluegrass people basing their stuff on black material and so on. I said, yeah, I understand, Harry. He's got this picture of America in which everything fits, uh, uncomfortably sometimes, but it fits. Listen to Amanda Petrusic again. She is struck that there's a graphic symbol on that anthology that seems to encase the whole thing. A single string of the celestial monochord meant to connect heaven and earth. She writes, it seemed possible that others might feel the otherworldly trance I often fell into while listening to the collection. Maybe Harry Smith was giving us permission to be rhapsodic about the experience, to finally submit to what Allen Ginsberg once called burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo, to accept music as magic. It's very well written. It is. We all take our music in different ways, don't we? <laughs> I mean, um, I heard the old weird America is not being that old and not that weird. If anything, I kept hearing it still running. John Sweat, I think we all want to accept music as magic. I think we want to thank Harry. And I want to thank you, John, for an amazing book on Harry Smith called Cosmic Scholar. Thanks for this conversation too, John. Thank you. John Sweat is the biographer before this of Billie Holiday, Miles Davis, Sun Ra, and Alan Lomax. His new book is Cosmic Scholar, The Life and Times of Harry Smith. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of independent podcasts. This week, listen to Out There from producer Willow Belden and her team in Wyoming, Out There ended its fourth season in July with an episode called Learning to Swim, about what it's like for an adult to learn a skill that many pick up as kids. You can listen at outtherepodcast.com, and you can hear the whole Hub & Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.